Hello, everyone out there. You're either commiserating the loss of your football idols or you're celebrating still after a few days. As of this recording, we don't know. And to be honest, at the film file, we don't really give much of a monkey's. But what we do know is film. The film show for Film Geek by Film Geeks, episode 76. Well, that came out of nowhere, even though you, you kind of told me you were going to do it, still came out of nowhere, just like it did last time, except I didn't hear it until I was uh, I was listening to the show on the way to work. And then I went, blimey, he's got bold with that theme tune. What's he doing? He's gone off the rails. Of course, I'm Lee Ford. And of course, I'm Andy Meekin. And welcome back to The Film File. How are you all doing? Hope you're well. I'm a bit under the weather tonight, Andy. I don't know why. Uh, so if I do sound a wee bit snotty, that's because I am. Do you think it's possibly, you know, we've pretty much gone a whole year of social distancing and things like that, where masks are worn. And so, I mean, I know I've not had a cold for over a year, but now that we're getting more in contact with people, we're getting, there's a chance that all those cold viruses that we've missed are going to catch up with us now. Yeah. I mean, the big worry I was reading is, is the flu. Now I got a flu vaccination at the beginning of the year, so I'm, I'm pretty confident on that. In fact, I must be dosed up the eyeballs with, with just about every kind of vaccine at the moment. But uh, I'm not worried about that. But I think you're right. I think that uh, we've just not been in contact with other people. And you know what it's like when you're out there. It's it's, it's a cesspool of, of disease, as I tell you. It's like the fan... It's like the fantastic voyage. A wretched hive of scum and villain. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, if I'm a bit snotty tonight, uh, folks, do not worry as normal service will be resumed, hopefully next week. So what's uh, what's been happening in your court? Uh, not a lot, a lot of work. I've got a few days off after tomorrow. I'm looking forward to having a nice extended weekend of rest. Uh, today, I've been amusing myself online because there's been a lot of tra trailers dropped this week and we'll talk about a few of them during the news yes we will but um one that dropped today is the clifford the big red dog trailer the new like trailer for that and i've just been amused on twitter by all the adults sulking and saying it looks rubbish it's not made for you <laughs> the books were made for six-year-olds the cartoon series were made for six-year-olds what makes you think this film is going to be aimed towards anyone other than six-year-olds and to be fair i saw the trailer and i thought yeah i'm not interested but a six-year-old will lap that up. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what it's all about. I and mean, we found that with we found that with a few things. Sonic the Hedgehog springs instantly to mind, where yeah. grown men are complaining <laughs> that their childhood has been uh, has been solid in some way. <laughs> when things are for kids, they're for kids. They don't come into it with the kind of baggage that we do as adults. So you know, it's a kids' film. Uh, but I, you know, I'm I'm highly amused if if several grown men are going to be there on day one, uh, <laughs> outside in the queue, pushing past some uh, five year old and his mom to get a to get a better seat. I want to see the big red dog first. Um, also, this past week, uh, I had my first full monthly wage slip in almost a year, <laughs> and it was so nice. And it's it's just like you're looking at the wage packet and just going. Oh my! I've got more money than what I normally live on these days, so I can start to like get my finances back in order, and I can start to think about 
my next project, which is building my next computer. Um, so I'm starting to like work out what costings I'm going to need because uh, my computer's done well. It's had 10 years innings. It's doing okay. It can still run games quite well, but it's starting to struggle when I'm processing the audio and video for the show. That's when um, it's yeah. starting to get resource heavy. And I, I, I want something for that kind of creation aspect more than a gaming machine now. So I've got I've got it planned. The only problem is we're still suffering from the after effect of all the COVID lockdowns that uh, processor chips are rare and very expensive at this point in time. So I'm, got, yes, I'm just so waiting until the market gets back and then I'll start building things up. Yeah, see, for me, it's a choice between a new TV because I've had my TV coming up now to about six years. And at the time I bought it, it was state of the art. But it's not that I'm a, I'm a, a, a gadget junkie. I don't have to have the new model, but you're starting to see wear and tear. Picture quality isn't as good. Or I've got to get a new MacBook because around the same time, my MacBook is going, I'm just going to take a little bit of time with this. <laughs> you just hang on, sir. You just hang on while I, I process this. Mm, I'm still processing. It's uh, and I and I it's, my, it's beloved my MacBooks. It's been all over the world with yeah. me, um, but it's one of these two are going to have to be the next purchase. Now, unfortunately, I was going to do it last weekend, but I got hit by a huge bill which I didn't see coming, and it was sort of like, oh, blimey, Charlie! It can only be one or the other now. So uh, I keep looking at the TV while watching, going. Can I live with it a little bit longer? It's all looking a bit blue. Or oh, do I need a MacBook? Because I use that more than anything else. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you choose a TV, and we don't get paid or sponsored by them in any, no, any way, shape, like or form. Um, Richer Sounds, I thoroughly recommend. I bought all my TVs over the past 15 years from Richer Sounds. The warranty for six years is included as part of the basic price, and it undercuts every one of the competition out there. The after-sales service is spot on. Anytime I've had an issue, they've dealt with it within 48 hours. They are marvellous. Oh, well, you know, I think I bought my soundbar from, from Richard Sounds, if I remember. Mm. So, yeah, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. So maybe, maybe at the weekend I will, uh, I'll start checking one out. But it's one or the other right now because we don't do this show for monetary gain. I know you think we're living it up in our, our Hollywood penthouses. No, that's not <laughs> the case at all. But we do love bringing it to you. And on this show, what we're going to love bringing you is a review of Fast and the Furious Part 9, which Andy's <laughs> already grinning at. You say, you say we're going to love bringing you the review. Yeah, I'm going to love bringing the review. <laughs> Andy, what else have you got? Uh, we're also talking Quadrophenia as our deep dive this week. And also, my other reviews, I've got Kindred, which landed as a Sky original this week if that's a clue as to where we're going with that review. Supernova, which landed in cinemas, and The Ice Road, which landed on Amazon. I've only heard of The Ice Road by the track that I play on the rock show that is on uh, No Barriers Radio. And if you are listening for the first time, you can hear us on the radio Thursday nights, and we're repeated again on No Barriers Radio. Uh, also, we will be reviewing the last instalment of Loki. But before all that, Andy's going to dig deep into the interweb to bring you all the goss, all the news, all the speculation in an item that is fondly known as, across the world, no doubt, as the news. Okay, so there needs to be a song now, which is called the release date shuffle. 
because if it if there was, I think there was one by ten cc. Was it? <laughs> it would be top of the hit parade every week because. Yes, the release date shuffle has hit once again. Dune has been shunted a few weeks to October the 22nd, moving from its original October the 1st. I say original. Its original shuffled, 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 shuffled release date um, of October the 1st. It now puts it as releasing at the same week as Last Night in Soho, The French Dispatch, and Jackass, which surely something there is going to shift, as that's a pretty packed week. I know what I'm highlighting uh, as we speak on those. And I tell you what, it's not Jackass. (laughs) Three films on that list I'm desperate to see. Jackass. I'm a fan of Jackass, but you know what? I can live without it. But Last Night in Soho and French Dispatch, I cannot wait for those films. And Dune, I'm a huge fan of. I cannot wait for that film either. So that is going to be a great week if those three stay the course. The, The upsetting thing is that you know that because of what kind of film draws people in, if all those four films release on the same week, Jackass will be the bestseller. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think Dune is, no matter that it's so beloved by fans, is still a bit of a hard sell. Uh, and still the hard sell that the David Lynch version was a hard sell. So, um, yeah, we'll wait and see. But that's the top of my list, along with the new Wes Anderson film. It does move Dune away, however, from its original release date, which would have seen it clash with James Bond, which, uh, yeah, that that was surely never going to last because there was no way anything's going to go up against Bond. Bond has so much anticipation behind it that nothing will come out that same week. And it also puts it two weeks earlier than Marvel's Eternals. So it, it slots it nicely in the middle as a blockbuster film during a run of blockbusters. And this ever-changing game of chicken that distributors are playing is not likely to stop. We're going to see this because we are now suffering the after effects of all the films that were put on hold and all the films that were still in production and all the new films that got put into production all clamouring for a spot before the end of this year. It's going to be very packed. I mean, even with June coming out on that date alongside those, the previous week, Halloween Kills comes out and Ridley Scott's Last Duel. So it's still going to be quite busy anyway with those two. I saw the trailer of Halloween Kills and, uh, and Colour Me interested. Mm. Not impressed yet, but interested. We'll, we'll mention a bit more on the Halloween Kills trailer when we're talking about a few trailers that have caught my eye later. But yeah, it's got me interested. More interested than what the last Halloween film had me. Um, in addition, the Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, has now moved a week to October the 1st. And Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho has moved a month to September the 22nd. All three films are still expected to be a day and date release on HBO Max. All of this was inevitable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely inevitable. I think the thing with Dune is, um, have they still got the deal with HBO Max? At this point in time, yes. There's still a lot of speculation that there's been a lot of pushback and it won't actually make it um, to HBO Max on the same time. Or it might have like a couple of weeks of cinema before it goes to HBO Max early. But at this point in time, HBO Max is still quite insistent that it's a day and date release. Okay. What else you got? Now, we're going to be talking about the film later on. Well, I'm going to be talking about the film later on. But Fast 9 has had a pretty strong box office opening in the US this past weekend, snagging $70 million on its opening three days, which makes it the highest weekend since December 2019. But Andy, didn't we discuss on the show just a couple of weeks ago that cinema is dead? Yep, cinema's dead. I mean, it, the film's, yeah, that's what I thought. The film's only made $405 million worldwide to date. So, you know, it's a, it's clearly a bomb. Yeah, uh, With those kind of numbers, it's a certain that the next film is going to shift gear into production pretty swiftly. And once more, Vin Diesel has said there's two more films. Now, I remember him saying that there was only two more films left in the series way back on number seven. 
And then on number eight, he said, there's two more films in the series. And now they've made number nine. He's saying there's two more films in the series. This is going to keep going on. It is. There'll always be two more films until we reach the two universal crossovers, which will be Jurassic Park meets uh, Fast and the Furious. And it will be Jurassic Furious. <laughs> I, I, I think you, Universal are probably eyeing it up. You know, they're two biggest franchises. Let's cross over. Let's create a new universe. Uh, yeah, given how this latest film went, it would, I wouldn't put it past them, to be honest with you. Um, filming on the next two films is planned to be back to back and they will form one large story. And it's planned to start in January next year. Is, is The Rock still in it? Because he's looking pretty busy at the moment. It's very unlikely that he will return to the series, although the Hobbs and Shaw spin-off franchise is planning a second film, uh, mainly because of his clashes on set with Vin Diesel. Okay. Which Vin Diesel recently revealed that he pushed The Rock and treated him like treated him poorly on set to try to push him to be a better actor. Vin Diesel trying to push anyone <laughs> to be a better actor. Sort yourself out, mate. The Rock's actually a good actor. And it's all about family. It's all it's about all family. Fun. It's all about family. See, the reason I mention it is Dwayne Johnson has targeted a Christmas action adventure called Red One. He has, yes. Um, for Amazon, I believe. Yeah. Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or as I like to call him, Rock the Dwayne Johnson, is um, he's pretty prominent at the moment. And I saw the trailer for uh, Jungle Cruise last week, which I wasn't sold on until I saw the trailer. And it, again, it's his charisma on screen that draws you in. Well, you tell you what... Um... Everybody was writing off Jumanji because yeah. of The Rock's involvement. And, and we've had two movies out of that, uh, two very, very successful movies out of that. So, you know, his charisma just does transfer to box office dollars. Yeah, he's, he's just great on screen. He appears to be having fun in the films that he's making, and that fun conveys well across to the audience. So I'm well and truly on board for anything that he's going to be in, and I'm interested to see him do a Christmas film. Will it be like Arnie when he did uh, Jingle All The Way? I don't know. Will it become that beloved? I don't know, but I'm interested. So since we've been recording this show, Neil Gaiman has announced that Good Omens, uh, based on his fantastic book uh, with Terry Pratchett and a series that landed on Amazon a couple of years back now, is having a sequel again for Amazon, again with Michael Sheen and David Tennant returning. Uh, we know in real life that they're, they're big friends and, and they had such great chemistry. Now, uh, while I love the book, it's one of the few books that made me laugh out loud on, on a tube once and, and distracted other passengers. I kind of like the series. Um, it, it, it wasn't as witty as the book. And I think that, that Terry Pratchett weirdness was, was kind of a little bit missing. But we say this every time. Uh, until it's out, we'll be giving you our thoughts then. But um, I'm dubious, uh, to say the least, right now. Uh, I know that there was always ideas for doing a second book, uh, but Neil and Terry couldn't find the time to really spend together to pan it all out. So they come up with an idea for a general story while they were both at a convention one weekend, but they never had the chance to flesh it out. So Neil Gaiman has always spoken about how he'd like to eventually bring that to some kind of format. So this is how he's going to do it. He's going to show us what him and Terry had initially come up with through his own lens. Yes, the series kind of lacked Terry Pratchett's um, wit, his style, and his surreality of approach. But I know that Neil has said a few times that they'd always, always discussed in private 
if it was to get made into a TV series, what would make the TV show and what wouldn't? So it's possible that some of the aspects that were missing from the series were actually changes that Terry wanted to be made for a TV outing. We'll never know because sadly we lost Terry Pratchett a few years ago. But I'm in, I'm interested to see a season two of Good Omens because A, I do love Neil Gaiman. B, I do love those two on screen together. They are marvellous. Agreed. Franchise that we've spoken about a few times, which is coming back, is the Transformers one. And it's got a title. It's called Rise of the Beasts. Yes, it has. And it's it's starring one of the actors that I, that I admire quite a lot. Um, it's going to be set in the 90s. And it will introduce the Maximals, the Predacons and the Terracons to the film franchise, which at this point, anyone who doesn't know the Transformers cartoons, comics, etc., has just gone all misty eyed and doesn't understand what I'm talking about. You mean like me? Yes. Um, It's been revealed that this will serve as a continuation of the Bumblebee movie. And will adapt okay. the Beast Wars saga from the 90s. Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback are confirmed casting. Ramos is playing an ex-military electronics whiz, while Fishback plays a museum artifact researcher. Stephen Capel Jr., who directed Creed 2, is directing with a producer, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, saying that this will be bigger in scale than Bumblebee, more akin to Bay's films, but will keep the heart and humour that Bumblebee had. So he's clearly making it clear that although it wants to be as huge as Bay's films, Bay's films were very vacuous when it came to heart. He wants to keep that that Bumblebee brought to it. Well, I'm, I'm glad he's going down more the Bumblebee route, because uh, even though I, I'm not a huge Transformers fan, I think I gave up with the last one. I never saw that. But I, I did like Bumblebee an awful lot. I thought it, I thought it was a, a delightful film. And I just put that down to Travis Knight. Uh, for fans of the comic book and cartoon, I'm going to throw out some names of new Transformers confirmed to crop up, and you can all get excited. So RC, the Ducati 916, will t- pop up. Mirage, the Porsche 911. Nightbird, a Nissan GTR. Optimus Primal, who's a gorilla. Rhinox, who's a rhino. And Scourge, who's the Terracon leader. Wow, all those names got me excited when I read them. Uh, As well as an off-road version of Bumblebee. Ron Perlman has been set to voice Optimus Primal, which, strangely, this saw some so-called Transformers fans online gripe that they should get Peter Cullen for it because he provided the voice of Optimus Prime. Clearly such big fans that they don't know that Optimus Primal is a completely different character to Optimus Prime. (laughs) Oh, the fans. (laughs) We can't do this without you, but we often despair. The Beast Wars era of the cartoons and the comics kind of get overlooked by a lot of people. But I thought that they had some of the best stories that the Transformers saga had. And I'm really excited to see what they can do with it on the big screen because it adds a whole new dimension to the transforming element. Looking forward to it. And if they can tap that heart, like you say, of Bumblebee, it makes it something more than just giant giant monster robots smashing each other up. Which, if it isn't, there'll be a lot of disappointed people in. Uh, I've got a bit of news. Uh, Peter Jackson's Beetle documentaries, which is we've had to wait an awful long time for it, further than we'd originally planned, uh, is now becoming a six-hour series on Disney+. And it is the kind of flip of uh, the classic Let It Be. It's called Get Back, and it shows the band not in disintegration mm. mode as, as Let It Be portrays them, but much more positive and much more creative. So as a huge Beatle fan, I just can't wait. And, and the idea of it being a six-hour series on Disney+, Plus, it uh, whets my Beatle appetite. Yeah, I remember we reported a good few weeks or maybe a couple of months ago about how Jackson, when he approached it and he got all this footage and he went in 
thinking, you know, oh, well, this is the this is the era that the Beatles fell apart. And he was expecting to look through the footage and see more of that, that you saw in Let It Be. But he pointed out that actually you can see them gelling more than what they ever did creatively. And this whole myth that Let It Be was the album that split them up, it wasn't actually the case. They didn't turn against each other. They weren't bickering all the time. They were still really good friends trying to deliver the best music that they can. I'm really interested. I'm glad that he's turned it into a miniseries because given the amount of footage that he said that he's managed to unearth, I think it would have been a shame if they had chopped it all down to try to do a two-hour edit. I agree. Timothy Oliphant, who I love on this show, is set to join Tom Hardy, who I don't have any care for, and Forrest Whitaker, who, yeah, I've got some time for, in a Netflix action thriller called Havoc, who come, which comes from Raid creator Gareth Evans. Oh, now I'm interested. I was kind of interested with Tom, uh, Timothy Oliphant because I'm such a big fan of Justified. He's been great in TV series. He's got a witty humour to him. And he's also, yeah, he's quite likeable on screen. Tom Hardy, yeah, not so, not so bothered with. Uh, Justin Cornwell, Jesse May Lee, Sonny Pang, Louis Guzman, and mixed martial artist Michelle Waterson will also be set to appear in the film, which sees a bruised detective fighting his way through a criminal underworld to rescue a politician's son after a drug deal goes wrong. He uncovers a web of corruption that ensnares the entire city. It's familiar territory for Evans, who um, the raid kind of tapped into this kind of aspect anyway. And with a mixed martial artist being cast amongst there, let's expect some corridor fighting scenes and takedowns and some great action. Did you ever see the movie he did in between? Um, it was basically a kind of a rebooting of Witchfinder General. Did you see it? I didn't know. Sean Bean, I believe, without me rushing to IMDb and trusting my own memory. But uh, it was interesting. The, the guy can direct. It just lacked something that he that he had in the Raid films. But interested to see where he's going. It's good to see his career back on track. Yeah. Pet Cemetery 2 is looking to not be a sequel to the previous film, but will instead be a prequel. Reports have now come out that Jackson White is in final negotiations to play a young Judd Crandall, the elderly character portrayed by John Lithgow in the re- recent film and Fred Gwynn in the 1989 version. Ask me why I'm disappointed. Why are you disappointed? Because there's clearly no threat to the lead character. <laughs> oh, you mean he won't die? Unless he dies and he gets buried and he comes back fine. Yeah. It just, <laughs> whenever they do that, they they, they diminish the idea of, of threat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to some extent, we could say that about the Sopranos prequel, but with something like Pet Cemetery, where it is about the horror, uh, it's not a character piece, then it just diminishes. We know what happened to his wife. Yep. We know it diminishes that. So, yeah, there you go. That's yeah. my 10 cents worth. I'm, I'm completely on like, on board with what you're saying there. I mean, the recent Pet Cemetery didn't really enthrall us anyway. Uh, the film is set to start filming in August. Lindsay Beer will write and direct based on a draft from scribe Jeff Buhler. And the film is going to be a Paramount Plus debut in the US. What this means internationally is uncertain as of yet because there's no deal struck with any major service from Paramount Plus with Netflix, Amazon, etc. It might get a cinema release. It might go straight to streaming. Anything else for us? Loads. It's a busy Ooh. week this week. Uh, Sony Pictures have begun development on a film adaptation of the manga title Made in Abyss. The story follows an orphan girl named Rico who sets off to find her missing mother with her robot friend Reg. Her mother was one of the last notable explorers of a giant hole in the earth called the Abyss, which contains artifacts and remnants of a long-lost civilization and is a popular spot for cave raiders to delve. In addition, those who enter the abyss find themselves afflicted with a curse which grows stronger the further they delve. The comic has already seen an adaptation into an anime in 2017, but this is aiming to be a big big screen adaptation. I'm not a huge fan of, of anime. Um, 
so it, it it doesn't tickle my fancy at all. I think the idea is, is quite an interesting concept. I think it's an idea that we've seen in other movies or something similar, but, you know, we'll wait and see. But at the moment, I can't say that I'm holding my breath. Now, one animated film that caught me by a lot of surprise was a few years ago when Garth Jennings's musical animation Sing came out. Yeah, I remember that. I um, The child likes it. It likes it an awful lot. Um, and, so, and so does... Uh, her indoors, so to speak. She's uh, she's a big fan. I've not got around to watching it. It's an absolute pleasure. I was I innocently thought that I would not like the film. I made it up in this in my mind that oh oh really? It's it's like X Factor with cartoon characters. I don't want to watch that. And then when I watched it, I was hooked. And it's witty. It's brilliant. It's got that Garth Jennings comedy surreality aspect okay. to it, and it works a charm. So when a trailer landed this week for Sing Two you can guess that I had a big grin on my face. The animation sees Jennings return to direct again, uh, directing Matthew McConaughey as Buster Moon, who's got his eyes on a new show with his new team of performance. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, Scarlett Johansson, Nick Kroll, Tori Kelly, Taron Edgerton and Nick Offerman are all returning to voice their characters. And Pharrell Williams, Letitia Wright, Eric Andre, Chelsea Peretti and Bono are all along for the ride this time. And this time, the gang are seeking a legendary reclusive singer named Clay Calloway in order to break into the big time. And the trailer had me chuckling. Oh, good. Definitely looking forward to this one. It's been five years since the first film came out, and it looks like it's a worthy sequel. We've had a lot of trailers over the last week, don't we, Andy? We have. We've already mentioned the Halloween Kills trailer. Now, yeah, it looks spectacular. That that trailer shows how bloody and brutal this new entry is going to be. We see the fire service rescuing Michael and then getting quickly offed by him. The only problem that I've got with this new trailer is I think that it shows you too much. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, I, I do have a tendency to agree with you. I also thought that it was a little confusing if, if you've not read anything about it. It's it's basically a, a reboot of, of Halloween 2, isn't it? Yes, uh, there's echoes of Halloween 2 within there because there's definitely a hospital location being used. And those who know the second film will know that that formed a huge focus point on the second film. Uh, the trailers come under a fair bit of flack with people saying that as it's shown too much, is it worth watching this film? But I'm wondering whether it's shown us a lot of deaths, but there's actually a lot more than what they've already shown us. Or is there some misdirection in some of the editing? Classic bait and switch. As, as a whole, it definitely made me a lot more excited than what the first film did. And then we get to a, a trailer that as soon as it landed, we both started speculating with each other online. Shang-Chi. <laughs> yeah, well, again, Marvel do this. They they bring out a trailer. There's no forewarning. There's no, this trailer will land in three days. <laughs> and there it, and it, it landed uh, uh, Monday morning. And um, it's much more, okay, so they said the first one was a teaser and it felt like a long teaser. We, we mentioned that at the time. But it, it gave an essence of what the story is, which I'm, I'm sure will happen with the next Eternals one for all those griping that it didn't give you any any plot. It looks great. It looks spectacular. Um, can't wait. Bring it on is all I can say. This trailer gave some background to the Ten Rings. And we also see Shang-Chi seeking his destiny. There's martial arts mysticism in there and modern day action melding together. But in addition, it's the quick glimpses of fan servicing moments that make you go, oh, oh. A water dragon. Is it Fin Fong Foom? Or is it just the Great Protector, as they seem to be calling it on the merchandise? And there's also a cage fight, which we kind of like argued over who it was. And I've come to the conclusion it's the abomination within the cage. Yeah, I'd heard that. And and I, I've not, to be honest, I've not gone back and rewatched it. 
But uh, interesting, because it just ties the whole universe up together, because I can't imagine that there's going to be a lot of crossover in Shang-Chi with, with any of the movies so far. It feels like a standalone project. So, yeah, it'd be great to see, uh, see Tim Roth return as the Abomination. Yep, especially since though people kind of forget that the Incredible Hulk was actually part of the MCU. I've got a lot of like for it. I wouldn't say love. I've got a yeah. lot of like for it. I think it's a it was a solid entry, even though it wasn't it wasn't from the core Marvel stable because it was a universal. Yes, it was, and that's why we don't get a Hulk movie. We don't get a Hulk TV series because of the relationship uh, with the fact that uh, Universal owned the rights to uh, the Hulk. Uh, as opposed to uh, Sony, for instance. Even though he's making a guest appearance in She-Hulk. Yes. Production on David Fincher's new film, The Killer, is set to start in November, which is an adaptation of the graphic novel series of the same name. And it will see Michael Fassbender in the lead role as a methodical and professional assassin who's waiting patiently for his next target, all alone, armed to the teeth, and slowly losing his mind. The script comes from Andrew Kevin Walker, who also penned Seven, and is one of several projects that Finch was working on as part of his Netflix deal. Oh, that sounds... I, I'm a big fan of uh, Andrew Kevin Walker. He's a, he's a darn good script writer. He's much maligned 8mm. The original script for that is fantastic, though it was a disappointing production. I've not seen 8mm. Haven't you? Uh, it's, it's okay. It's a great setup, but but falls apart in the last act, which you feel is a studio last act. But Seven is... I mean, Seven goes without saying that it's just so well-written and so well-directed that this pairing between these two is surely going to be gold again. Uh, nostalgia time, as Lena Dunham is set to write and direct a live-action film of 90s toy line Polly Pocket. Now, this goes back to what we keep saying, that people are getting to that age range within the industry, that they go, I remember this when I was a kid. Can we make something of it? Polly Pockets, completely outside my radar because uh, it was the 90s, but yeah. I am aware of it. Lily Collins is attached to Star, and the story will follow a young girl and a pocket-sized woman played by Lily Collins who become friends. That's all you need to know, Andy. That's all you need to need to put forward. I don't think it's our key market. This is one of many Hey Remember This Toy projects that is in some form of development, which also includes other Mattel brands such as Viewmaster, Barbie. I can see Barbie. I can understand that one. Yeah. Barney, Hot Wheels. I mean, haven't we already got that? It's called Fast and Furious. They've been trying to do Hot Wheels for years. They've been There's been so many scripts. You know the other big toy one that they've always wanted to do? Believe it or not, Slinky. <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard about that. I'm not sure how you'd do a slinky film, but um, you know, it, it's 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 risking falling down the stairs if they do it. And <laughs> let's not forget Rock'em Sock'em Robots, which is um, something that Vin Diesel is already attached to. Yeah. I just think that this nostalgia trend needs to end. It, it's like they're just getting things just for the name rather than actually having a good reason to do a film. No, I agree. I agree. It's uh, even though I I have seen the trailer for the Masters of the Universe series. Uh, and I thought it looked great. I, I would, it passed me by. I was, I was, I was dating girls and going to strip clubs by that age. I think Thirteen was a difficult age, but um, yeah, I, I, I never caught up with Master of the Universe. But I'm intrigued to see how this series lands. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Adrian Brody, and Riley Keough are set to star in John Trengrove's thriller Mandrone. Eisenberg plays an Uber driver and aspiring bodybuilder who finds himself inducted into a libertarian masculinity cult where he begins to lose his grip on reality as his repressed desires are awakened. I've been there. I've done that one. It's called Fight Club. I think you just described it before when you said when you were 13. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Damien Chazelle's Babylon film already had a stacked cast, but it's added even more names to the mix. 
The film, which is set in the late 20s during the shift from silent movies to talkies, will explore the rise and fall of multiple characters during this turbulent time for cinema history. The cast already had Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, Diego Calva, Jovan Adepo, Catherine Waterson, Lee Jun Lee, Max Minghella, Samara Weaving, Lucas Haas, Flea, Eric Roberts, PJ Byrne, Rory Scovell and Damon Gumpton. It now adds Toby Maguire, Olivia Wilde, Spike Jones, and Phoebe Tonkin to the mix. It's funny because I was just saying the other day, actually, I've, I've not seen much of, of Toby Maguire in the last few years. I and mean, I saw his name crop up, something I watched very recently, which where he was a producer on. But it was the first time I'd seen Toby Maguire mentioned uh, in, in anything for some time. Yeah. Anything uh, Damien Giselle does, I'm in. Yeah. I watched, and I think I think we mentioned it on the show, I watched First Man, and I so, so uh, wished I'd seen it at the cinema. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely beautiful film, uh, really moving. I think he's just a, an amazing, uh, amazing filmmaker. Uh, I've loved everything he's done so far. Given Giselle's involvement in this, filming set to start, and with the subject matter being about cinema history, you can colour me. Definitely excited on this one. I will be looking forward to this one. And this, I'm not going to make the mistake that I made with First Man. I'm going to see this on the big screen. So the one last thing to wrap up the news, um, Tarantino was once more confirmed that he's got his, his plans to stop making films after his 10th is still on. He popped up on Real Time with Bill Mayer and confirmed that he was still following through on the long planned promise. As, as he says, from historical evidence, filmmakers don't get better after a certain point in their career. And some, such as Don Siegel, pondered whether they should have quit films after making films such as Escape from Alcatraz. Tarantino also commented that he had, at one point, considered closing off his films with a remake of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it, he cites that the film is very much of its time, and having a fresh approach for a modern audience could have shown how his own style had adapted over the years, but also how cinematic styles had grown throughout his career. He's, he's reassured people that that's not his plan anymore, and he's not going to do that. But I had to be interested. Yeah, I mean, there was there's that. There was talk of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood becoming a Netflix series, mm. miniseries, uh, as an extended cut. It's always intriguing to see what what um, Tarantino will always do next. And and you know, we are rabid fans. Even though I, I never got round to Hateful Eight, and uh, I didn't like Death Proof at all. But I did love, uh, I, I did love Hollywood. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm a fan of. I mean, when I rewatched all of these films last year, I included Hateful, Hateful Eight again, which I absolutely adore. But I also included Death Proof, which, like you, I didn't have any love for. But I got a lot more love from it watching it with fresh eyes, and now that it's distanced from its release. And I think it's a film that grows on you. And I've got a lot of love for I've got a love for his detail. I've got a love, lot of love for the fact that he just references other filmmakers throughout his own yeah. series of films. The same way that we're the film show for film geeks by film geeks, he's the filmmaker for film geeks. Yes, uh, I mean he, he's he's a, a cinematic magpie, you know, um, and, and that's why it's interesting because he doesn't do you know the classic I will rip this film off. He he takes elements from so many different films. Hateful Eight, for instance, taking elements from the thing yeah. that are subtle. You know, uh, when he first started his career, he was he was heavily influenced by Hong Kong cinema, and you saw elements of that. But they're never straight ripoffs. They are he indulges his 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 geekdom in it. Yeah, we'll we'll have a tenth film from him eventually. In the meantime, he might still be dabbling with making a TV series of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We don't know. Let's see what happens. I'm no doubt we'll report on anything that happens from him on this section in future. And that is 
the news. Enjoying the show so far? We're glad because we love doing this show just for you. Yes, you. This is episode 76. And if you didn't know, there are previous episodes that you can download from your favorite podcast platform. Hit the subscribe button. Make two grown men very happy. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that as well, simply by doing the following. Head over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. You won't be disappointed. Head over to Instagram and follow us, Filmfile UK. You might be disappointed. Email us with any thoughts, suggestions, ideas, reviews of films, things you think we should check out. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. We're waiting to hear right from you right now. Okay, so as you know, if you're a regular fan of the programme, we do our deep dives, which is to say we investigate a classic film, looking at when it was made, who it was made for, how well it did, who the casting was. That's why we call it a deep dive. And this week, we take you back to the heady days of 1960s London in the 1979 British drama Quadrophenia, which is loosely based on The Who's 1973 rock opera of the same name. What about uh, Brighton this weekend, eh? You're going to be one of the faces down there, now, are you? What do you mean, going to be? I am one of the faces. So what are we going to do about pills, then? Oh, I mean, if we're going to Brighton, we're going to need bloody millions of them, aren't we? Buddy! I don't want to be the same as everybody else. That's why I'm a mod, see? you got to be somebody, ain't you? Directed by Frank Rodham, who went on to make all the money by creating MasterChef, this was his feature film directing debut. And unlike the other adaptations of Who operas such as Tommy, Quadrophenia is not a musical film, nor does it feature an appearance from the band. It starred Phil Daniels as Jimmy, a young 1960s London-based mod who escapes from his dead-end job as a mailroom boy by dancing and partying and riding his scooter and brawling with motorcycle-riding rockers. After he and his friend participate in a huge brawl with the Rockers at the seaside town of Brighton, he's arrested and his life starts to spiral out of control. The film also starred Leslie Ash as his love interest and Ace Face himself, Sting. Andy, I didn't have much love for Quadrophenia when I saw it the first time because uh, it was a whole mods and rockers thing for me. And I, it's just a, a subgenre that, that never appealed to me. However, going back to it, I saw how how layered this film is and how clever a film is and how touching a film is uh, with, of course, the powerful ending. But but what was your first experience with Quadrophenia? Did, did you like it originally? Uh, I latched onto this film back in the VHS days in my teens. I was already a fan of The Who. And I also, as much as I'm a, I'm a metal fan, I was the kind of person who embraced so many variant types of music that I loved mod music. And I was drawn to this film because... I loved the album and I was initially surprised by how, how it decided to choose to not be a musical, which I felt after watching it was entirely the right creative choice to make. Uh, the film became more accessible in its manner and it was easy to convince my non-Who liking buddies to check out the film. And it became swiftly one of those films that me and my mates bonded over. Uh, we saw elements of ourselves within the roles being portrayed in there. We saw part of a community of like-minded friends with similar tastes, each unsure where our future would lie. And it tapped into that era of my adolescence in such a perfect way. Going back to revisit it 
I've revisited it this past week. And to tell you that I owned the Blu-ray for a long time now and literally only tore the shrink wrap off this weekend. That's how long it's been since I last watched it. There was a trepidation that maybe it wouldn't have that impact on me that it had when I was at that age group. But I found a new enjoyment for the film, which has propelled it even higher in my film rankings as a result. Elements that are missed in the early watchings, relating particularly to cinema technique and acting choices, were very much apparent. And the cast all seemed all the more perfect as a result. There's so much that I took away from this film. The first, I've always enjoyed it to a degree, but I enjoy it even more now. The opening shot of the cliff edge view of a sunset before Jimmy turns and walks away, still leaving ambiguity as to what his future would be at the end of the film, but giving a tinge of optimism, although you can read it that he, he, along with the moped at the end, went over the cliff and we start with his sunset before we throw back to the days leading up to that moment. And the cast, Phil Daniels is young, likeable and roguish. A dollop of insecurity in there, lashing out in frustration at parental figures and anyone who feels he's been slighted by in a very immature manner. And you've already mentioned like that some of the cast, the cast around him is packed with names that you sit, it's one of them that you sit and watch it now and going, that's it, that's that person. That's that person for because everyone in this film went on to be recognised in so many other things. Leslie Ash, who you've mentioned, Philip Davis is in there, Mark Wingert, Ray Winston as Jimmy's rocker friend, John Altman, Timothy Spall, George Innes, Michael Elphick, Toya Wilcox. It's genuinely a point at the screen and ask, is that kind of film? Absolutely great to go back and revisit. We don't have many of those films, do we? We don't have many of those big nostalgia films than the way that the Americans had, you know, American Graffiti, for mm -hmm. instance, where you had a lot of young rising stars. But that the thing about Quadrophenia is, is, is it fills that role and, and it fills it perfectly. Interesting talking about casting. John Lydon, uh, better known as Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, screen tested for the role of Jimmy. However, the distributors of the film refused to insure him for the part and so he was replaced by by young Phil Daniels. Uh, and Phil Daniels makes it his own. And to some extent, I wouldn't say that Phil Daniels has been typecast because of it, but there is a, uh, an edge of that character that runs through other performances, even down to, to the Blur video. Yeah. Uh, the cast were encouraged during the making of this film to improvise on set, having the script notes as just basic guidelines. And much of the banter between the group is natural as apparently they all bonded because they're all around the same age. They bonded well behind the scenes. Uh, there's even like, I've, I've watched this with the commentary on as well. And there's a house party orgy room that according to the commentary actually resulted in some improvisation that had to be cut between a key cast member and an extra. That's how much they bonded on set and that's how much they were allowed to just be creative and go for it. Uh, the low budget of the film actually benefits it. The shortcuts that were made really do work in such a great way. Frank Rodden made the most of the low budget nighttime road scenes couldn't afford expensive lighting. So watch out whenever you rewatch this for a black cab that's following the mopeds, shining headlights on the moment, because that's there for a particular reason. So you can actually see what's going on and it makes it look real. It makes it look, you know, you're there with them. It's not like artificially lit. It's not fake. It feels like it's a genuine representation of the area. Locations were used for all but the house party. And actual mod groups invited themselves down to Brighton for the Brighton shoot to just, just to get into this film. Some finding that they needed to dress up as rockers in order to balance out the numbers a bit, which uh, they made sure to cover their own faces because they didn't want their mod friends noticing that they were dressed as rockers. Uh, but there's so much that this was Frank Rodham's first feature outing. And it's such a confident film. There's a marvellous single take shot entrance into the party 
with Jimmy placing his cigarette in a wall mask decoration before wandering around the lower floor, picking a cigarette back off, going into the main room and joining the dance party in the middle. And it's so smoothly done. There's confidence in a direction here that you don't normally see from someone on their first outing. It, it does carry on that tradition of, of 1960s angry young men films uh, and, and feels like a, like a bit of a time capsule to that period. As I said, I didn't warm to it first time. I think that was down to musical preference. Uh, as I grew older, I realised how wrong I was. And, and it is, it's a, it's a great film. I'd like to have seen more from Frank Rodham. I know he went on into TV and, and made a killing. He did uh, Alfida St. Pet. And as I said before, he developed and he's getting all the money from MasterChef. But he was a great director and I would like to see him do something else. It, it, it's, it's such a, not a waste of a career because he's, he's done very, very well, but I would like to see where else he went. I know he did a few movies, but he showed so much, so much talent in that film. So much early promise. It's a film about youth, energy, identity and belonging. It's a look at the years where you lack direction yourself and you're trying to find where you fit. Uh, and teenage angst plays out in many films of a similar nature. Many of them American, like you've said, American graffiti, etc. But for me, this one is one of the best examples of that genre of filmmaking because it taps into a very British kind of culture. It looks the part. The set dressings, the costumes, all set it firmly in the 60s. And it feels very identifiable. Also worth listening to is the Who original uh, rock opera, because thematically it ties in to the movie in more ways than one. So that's Quadrophenia. Andy, where can you find it if you want to watch it? You can either purchase it or rent it on streaming or just go and get the Blu-ray. Get the Blu-ray. There's a, there's a wealth of extra features on there, including a really insightful commentary track that helps you appreciate some of the art of the film at the same time. Well worth checking out. So that's our deep dive for this week. And that was Quadrophenia. And Andy, I've got to ask the question. Are you raring to go with your film review for this week? Are you putting yourself in the driver's seat, pedal to the metal and going for it? Are we ready for your F9 review? I am just turning on my NOS and I'm ready to go into turbocharge. <laughs> go. Okay. I promise that I'm not going to go too harsh on this film because... I've said this online, and I apologize to people who've already read me saying this online, but I'm going to repeat it here. You should never mock something that was clearly created by a five-year-old who went through his whole box of crayons, some of which he ate whilst making it. <laughs> Somewhere, there's a mother with a copy of the script of this film on her fridge, displayed proudly because her little boy managed to write it. However... You're not winning me over. No one outruns their past. And mine has caught up to me. Been a long time, Tom. Little brother. My brother is about to hurt a lot of people. Brother against brother. This should be interesting. If we don't go out, we go out together. Let's give some backstory first. We've discussed a few times how you've not seen any of the Fast and Furious films, but I've been along for the ride. I've got a lot of love for the first film and I keep saying you should watch the first film. It's a completely different film. It was Point Break with Cars. It ticked all the right boxes. The second film was Average. Then Tokyo Drift came along and contrary to popular opinion, I enjoyed that more than the second one. I thought it was a great entry into the series. And then things got a little silly. 
The fourth film started the slow descent into preposterous action, and each film has since strived to outdo the previous film in the most ridiculous physics-defying action moments. From flipping trucks, to flipping tanks, to parachuting cars, to bizarre gymnastics at high speed, it's all got a little bit silly, and is so far removed from that first film as you can get. But there was always a sense of thrill, an element of danger, and some peril in there. And then we got Hobbs and Shaw, which I found a great enjoyment with, and it basically became a superhero spy genre. And the charismatic leads, Rock the Dwayne Johnson and The Stave, kept the film on track. They knew exactly what they were delivering. They played it to that. And as you know, that's the only one I've seen. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, you quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a, it was a riot. It was, uh, um, it was silly. It was entertaining silly at the end of the day. It doesn't make a, a much lick of sense, but it didn't matter. I was entertained and... And it made me almost tempted to go and watch the rest of the uh, rest of the series, and then not. And if you want to hear what our full discussion was on that, it was our very first episode of the film file where we covered Hobbs and Shaw's. Wow, wow! <laughs> but now we have the ninth film in the main series, and all charisma has gone. The plot is little more than a quest hunt for part of a MacGuffin weapon device, complicated with the appearance of Dom's long lost brother, a guy that was so focused on family throughout the series, hasn't mentioned once to anyone in his whole life that he had a brother. The whole thing is an excuse for silly action moments, and the silly action moments are just plain ludicrous. From a rope bridge collapse that is escaped from in an impossible manner, to a swinging car around a cliffside, to a whole army shooting characters with no consequence, to a car with rockets in space seeking a single satellite. Yes, a rocket-propelled car in orbit around the Earth. I thought it was a joke. And there you just lost <laughs> me, because that's the only aspect of this particular film that I knew, because people were talking about this way before the film came out, that it was still in production, that eventually they would get into space. <laughs> now, the worst thing about all this is that the film has characters joking about how they seem to be invincible, as they should be dying from the scrapes that they get in. And whilst the film thinks this is a bit of meta fun, clearly, and it's like tongue in cheek, <laughs> we're invincible. The fact is, it's entirely true. We have a franchise here where two characters have died on screen in previous films and then come back in later films. And as a result, there's no danger. There's no peril. There's no stakes or reason to actually care. A fireball explosion will rip apart a truck. That's okay. Vin Diesel will stand up and walk out from it because he's invincible. Everyone in this is invincible. Even the return of a character in this film, Han, who died in a fiery fireball explosion car, we saw him die. He's back in this film. To quote Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it was just a scratch, sir. <laughs> and, you know, you could say, oh, no, Andy, don't drop spoilers. He's on the poster. He was in the trailers. The film did the spoiler itself, but then plays it as though it's a big surprise. It's like, really? Really? Is this where you're going? They get captured. No worries. The bad guys won't kill them. Why should they? They'll wait until they've walked out the room and leave three guys like to finish them off, at which point they can somehow escape. Fireball explosion wipes out a convoy. No worry. Van D Vin Diesel's fine. No scratches on him. This is a franchise in which they want you to actually think that there's some peril going on, but you know that there isn't. You know that everyone's immortal. And the huge problem in all of this is that whilst many of the characters are joking about it and joking about being immortal, Vin Diesel seems to be playing everything really serious. He's apparently under some impression that this is a serious film series. And there's a huge rock-sized gap in the cast and a Statham-sized personality. The rest of the characters 
just seem a little tepid compared to those two who brought the joy over the past few films. And looking back at it, the past three films, as preposterous as they've been, it's been those personalities that have made them work a lot more. Without them there, Vin Diesel is railroading this franchise into something that it shouldn't really try to be. And then you've got John Cena. John Cena plays Dom's brother, and he's a poor substitute for the gap that's been left by The Rock. The backstory of how the brother became estranged has a laughably poor oversight in it. Not in the actual story, that kind of makes sense. But the young adult versions of the characters played by two actors, one who's about a foot shorter than the Dom character, yet for some reason manages to grow a foot and a half to become taller than Vin Diesel as John Cena within, you know, between the ages of 18 and 25, doesn't make sense. And don't get me started on Cardi B popping up for no good reason. It's for the kids. It's, as they said in Hussaker Proxy, <laughs> it's for the kids. Now, you could turn around and say, but Andy, last week you enjoyed stupid nonsense like Monster Hunter. How can you diss on brainless fodder like this? There's a big difference between this and Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter didn't drag itself out past the two-hour mark, and it knew what it was from start to finish. Fast 9 is overblown, overlong, and overly serious at times, a stark contrast to the utter stupidity on display. I've been fine with these films over the past few entries, but this one had me groaning and swearing. Every action sequence resulted in me swearing at the screen, at the outcomes of how they just walked away from it. I'm done with this franchise. I'll stick around for Rock and Stathe in a Hobbs and Shaw sequel, but for this overlong Corona beer advert, I'm done. I'm out. It sounds less uh, Fast and Furious and more Fast and Tedious 9. So what else do you have? Quickly moving on from the car wreck you've described there, what else have you got? So a film called Kindred landed this week on Sky. Know nothing about this film, Andy. Tell me about Kindred. And this film sees a pregnant woman who's plagued by hallucinations start to suspect that the family of her deceased boyfriend have intentions for her unborn child. But is it all in her mind? Is she being kept locked away against her will for her own good or for nefarious means? And will anyone actually care? The funeral's tomorrow. I should go home. No rest. Doctor's orders. How are you feeling? A bit nauseous. I was the same with Benjamin. I'm going to need some of my things. I sent Thomas over yesterday. Everything you want will be in your wardrobe. How is the baby? I've been feeling dizzy. I'll get you some water. Maybe you should see another doctor. Don't worry, everything is under control. Thomas, <gasps> what are you doing? Why are you in here? You're not well. You don't even seem to realize that. Why keep me trapped in that house? You're conditioned. I don't have a condition. Ah! Give me the key. No. Give me the key. No! no! You're sick. Don't you realize you're the one who's sick? Than too much death in this family. Charlotte, played by Tamara Lawrence, collapses after hearing the shock news about her boyfriend Ben's death. When she awakes, she finds herself in a crumbling manor house where Ben's overbearing mother, Margaret, played marvellously by Fiona Shaw, and brother Thomas, Jack Loudon, are caring for her until the baby arrives. She initially accepts the help but starts to become suspicious as to why they won't let her contact the outside world. Her phone is mysteriously broken or even leave the premises. The gates are locked all the time. They say it's all for her own good and she's not well and she needs to be kept safe. But is there other reasons? Now, this could have easily been a British get out. 
looking at class structures and also race issues. And whilst indeed there are some parallels that are easy to draw between the two films, the lacklustre nature of this film fails to imbue any chilling aspects to the proceedings. And there's a very tired use of tropes or references to other better movies that make it clear that this is just a struggling first feature from a guy who normally delves into documentaries and shorts. The film aims for a naturalistic feel. Coming from a documentary maker, this kind of makes sense. But it ends up coming over as cheap as a result, and it loses any tensions within that cheapness. The cast are clearly trying, and you can't fault the performances on offer. But the film around them fails to connect, and it becomes yet another film which has that moniker of a Sky Original tag to it that just it just makes me really start to doubt that Sky Originals can ever be anything more than just humdrum or average at best. We've reached the stage, haven't we, when you see Sky Original in front of it that you just, you, you kind of, your heart skips a beat and you fall <laughs> into sudden despair. What else do you have? Supernova is currently showing at cinemas this week and this film is another one like The Father that tackles dementia. And so I approach this one expecting it to hit hard emotionally due to my own personal experiences that I discussed when I reviewed The Father a few episodes ago. So can you tell that it's gotten worse? I'd like to make a speech. I, uh... Well, maybe, maybe Sam will do it for me. I'd, I'd love that you do it for me. Now, as most of you will know, I'm slowly losing my ability to remember. And I definitely wouldn't be here if it weren't for this man next to me. I want to be remembered for who I was, but not for who I'm about to become. It's not fair to you. It's not about fair, it's about love. No, Sam. I want to see this through with you to the end. Tasca! Hey, sorry. You know, a very wise man once said, we will not starve for lack of wonders, but from lack of wonder. Now, this film sees Sam, played by Colin Firth, and Tusker, played by Stanley Tucci, who are taking a road trip to visit friends and family and places from their past. Tusker had been diagnosed two years earlier in the early stages of dementia, and he's still just on the borderline of the early stages before you start to lose yourself completely. The pair have realised that their time together is more important than ever, as soon Tusker will start to lose himself. However, there's a secret that is set to test their love more than anything before. Now, unlike The Father, which is set far into the stages of dementia, this film instead tackles that moment in time of suffering. When you're still pretty much the same person that you've always been, you remember all the things, but you know what's coming and you know that you're going to start to lose yourself and forget friends, family and loved ones around you. That moment when you realise that you're going to lose yourself. And at the same time, it only shows occasional moments of mild forgetfulness or confusion. And Stanley Tucci plays it all marvellously. For most of the film, there are no outward signs of any condition. But small moments, such as simply struggling to put on a sweater or forgetting the word for triangle, are small clues 
as to how close he is to that tipping point of the disease. The relationship between him and Firth Sam feels genuine as they speak about how far into the illness he is and they record conversations that they have about his condition and what Tusker is currently feeling and what he currently remembers. And the representation of them as a loving couple who've always been there for each other doesn't feel artificial. Their snipey discussions whilst on the road are very grounded and representative of how actual couples relate. Clearly, Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci's off-screen friendship that they've had for decades has helped the chemistry of the characters on screen and casting the pair together was a marvellous idea. Harry McQueen's direction is intimate yet not invasive and it brings the relationship to life in a very talky film that could have formed a stage play but in utilising beautiful location, it makes sure that this deserves to be a film. It's never showy. It's always intimate. It's a film that tells a simple, poignant story about love and how even the strongest of relationships can be truly tested. And it's definitely made even more powerful a film through the performances on screen. As a film that tackles the subject of dementia, albeit in a kind of underlying way rather than fully up front as the father did it is marvelous and it really does showcase that terrible moment in suffering dementia where you know that you're about to go absolutely recommended catch it on the screen if you can if not wait until it comes onto streaming and definitely mark this down as one to watch i could watch both of these actors read the phone book i just I think they're both fantastic. I, I, I want to see this film. I don't want to see it now. I think I'm going to have to see it at home because I think where I am right now, uh, it's not a film that I, I need to be seeing, even though I, I, I really, really want to see it, especially for, especially for those two actors. And lastly... So one film that landed on Amazon this week is The Ice Road. Liam Neeson is a mean mother trucker in this action thriller with ambition, even if the budget doesn't quite allow it to do itself justice. You heard about the cave-in? Yeah. I'm putting together a rescue mission. Says you had experience on the ice rig. Yep. My brother is in that mine. This is personal. Now I'm angry. What the hell was that? Don't be loose you're all going in. There's no time. We're coming. Just hang on. An explosion at a mine in northern Canada traps 26 miners in and there's a race against time to get the equipment needed to save them. And this sees a trucker, Mike, played by Liam Neeson, who works the ice road, the frozen lake roads that cover the northern regions of Canada and are perilous to traverse. And he joins a mission of three trucks, each carrying the same equipment so that if one of them is lost, the others can still have a chance of getting this equipment through and saving these miners. And they need to get to the mine in a short period of time before the poisonous toxic gas that has been unearthed in the mine overcomes them and kills them. Alongside him are his brother Gertie, his boss Jim Goldenrod. Yes, seriously, Jim Goldenrod. What a name. That's that's possibly one of the best names in cinema since Chev Chelios. Played by Lawrence Fishburne. And Tantu, played by Amber Midthunder. As well as Varney played by Benjamin Walker, who's an insurance risk assessor who's sent along to follow the proceedings that's going along and work out how much is being lost along the way. The ice road itself proves to be not the only peril along the journey, as it seems that someone 
doesn't want the convoy to succeed, and fingers of suspicion start to point between the whole lot of the group. For all the budgetary failings, Ice Road is actually quite a reasonable idea. Liam Neeson is grizzled and hardened, and whilst he isn't the cliché he normally plays, there's still enough of an action hero there to make for a compelling lead role. There's a good heart to the film as well. His relationship with his PTSD-suffering brother and the rest of the support cast is very well-placed. But sadly, whilst everything the film does right, there's pacing, the subtle build attention, the budgetary constraints work to undo. And some decidedly ropey CGI visual effects make perilous moments seem somewhat cheap and comical as a result. Overall, this is a mild diversion that played a tight 108 minutes, didn't outstay its welcome, but it's not something that I'm ever going to be compelled to revisit. Worth watching, but just be ready to find some of the effects work diminishes the experience somewhat. I don't fancy this at all. I I like Liam Neeson. I want him to do character parts. I think he's... I know he's talked about it and he said he wants to move on from the action parts, but I, I saw the trailer and he, and as you said, it just looked cheap uh, and I, zero, zero interest. Um, what it made me think about was uh, an ice version of Wages of Fear and that alone was, was not enough to draw me in, even though I love Wages of Fear, both versions. So because of the way that Loki lands, and it's now actually Disney's preferred day to land all their new series on a Wednesday, we are basically a week behind. So episode three of Loki landed last week. I'm sure you've seen it. So it gives us a chance to, to be light on spoilers, but it just might crop up as we go through. To me, this episode of Loki, when it, it's found its feet, it was doing so with episode two. I was reticent, but interested in episode one. And, and I mentioned to you that Loki could almost be the MCU Doctor Who. And this episode made me think of Doctor Who all the way through. Yeah, I need to quickly mention, so did I say the name Sylvie last week or did I say the name Sylvie last week? You did, <laughs> even though we've not explored her origin uh, and I'm waiting to see if it's uh, an entirely new character or it's 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 uh, the workings of the comic book character. But um, it was a very character-driven episode. Uh, whilst we still had the action towards the end as they're trying to get to the escape shuttle that is destined to blow up, thinking that if they get there, they can stop it blowing up and escape. It was more about the interaction between Loki and Sylvie, who may or may not be a female Loki, maybe the Enchantress, maybe the Sylvie character in the comics, maybe someone completely different. We still don't know completely. And it was, it was all about Loki once again finding who he is. And we get to see... We get to see classic Loki. We get to see Loki who has disregard for safety and things when he starts getting drunk in a perilous situation because he that's that's what he does. It it, it added, it, it showed that he's still very immature. He's not the matured godlike character of the latter MCU like we keep, we've kept saying. This is still a very immature, selfish Loki. Yeah, I, I mean, interestingly, and, and again, we said this last week, he's still Loki. They've not made him the good guy. They've not made him Doctor Who or they've not made it quantum uh, quantum leap. He's still Loki and he's still treacherous and he's still conniving and he's still the god of mischief. And that's the interesting thing for me is that they've stuck with that uh, and, and not broken away from who that character really is. The interplay between uh, Sylvie and Loki was fantastic. Two actors, top of their game, dueling on screen, great bit of screen chemistry uh, that, that worked perfectly. And like you, Andy, I'm interested to see where this goes we're halfway through the series episode four will have dropped by the time you hear this we'll talk about the next episode of loki 
next week. We did also get this week the little nod that the Time Variance Authority isn't staffed with people who were created for the Time Variance Authority. Yeah, I forgot about that. They are all people who, from alternate timelines, they've been severed. They've just been manipulated and had their minds wiped, and they believe that they've always existed. That opens up a lot of possibilities as to what's actually going on. Excellent. Now a quick look at what's coming up this next week on cinemas and streaming. So over at the cinemas, this week finally sees the release of Freaky, the Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton dark comedy horror that, well, if you consider the Happy Death Day did Groundhog Day as a horror, this is Freaky Friday as a horror, when Vince Vaughn's serial killer swaps minds with Catherine Newton's high school student. Well worth checking out. And also Another Round, the award-winning film from Thomas Vinterberg starring Mads Mikkelsen about four high school teachers who decide to do an experiment to consume levels of alcohol on a daily basis to see how it affects their social and professional lives. Well and truly worth heading to the cinema and checking out. Over on streaming services, Now TV and Sky sees Bill and Ted Face the Music, which we spoke about a few times on the show over the past year. Lee really enjoyed it. I wasn't that enamoured, but I'm going to give it another shot with fresh eyes and see if it's any better than what I remembered. And also Burnt Orange Heresy, which was one of the last films that I saw before the last lockdown um, at the cinema. And it's not bad. It's worth checking out. Some great performances, even if the story is a little formulaic. Over on Netflix, Hobbs and Shaw. Our very first podcast that we did was all about Hobbs and Shaw. And with this week, we're talking about the Fast and Furious 9 film. It makes sense that we're going to tell you to go watch Hobbs and Shaw over on Netflix, which sees The Rock, Idris Elba and Stathe all shining in an absolutely ridiculous action fest. And also, for a complete contrast, Midsummer, Ari Aster's cult film is one of the most chilling, Wicker Man-esque kind of cult horrors of our modern generation. Absolutely shining example of chilling psychological horror. Well worth checking out. Over on Amazon, the new film The Tomorrow War is the Chris Pratt time-travelling soldier battling aliens to save the world film that was initially planned for a cinema release, but due to all the pushbacks over the COVID, it's got picked up by Amazon, and you get a chance to see it this weekend. Okay, as you know, if you're a firm follower of the show, we always do uh, our neat thing. Something that we've watched, enjoyed, read, ate, whatever it is, whatever we considered it to be neat, our neat things. And as ever, Andy goes first with his neat thing of the week. Okay, so uh, I think I've mentioned this about a year ago, but I have to go back to it because Pitch Meetings on YouTube, which is part of uh, Ryan George's output, which he does for Screen Rant, is one of my weekly go-to pleasures. Every Sunday, I look forward to a new pitch meeting landing. And if you've never watched them, it's basically Ryan George playing two characters or sometimes more, who one of them is a writer pitching a film and the other one is a producer thinking of how much money they can make from it. And he always chooses where he can recent releases or if there's no big releases to really shine a spotlight on, he will go back to old classics. And whether you like the films or not, his ways of poking fun at them are so enjoyable. Whereas like you get people who will say that everything wrong with is a bit too cynical and a bit too negative. Ryan George's is more a light-hearted, like mocking fun approach. 
But when he gets his teeth into something, oh boy, he gets it right. And if you thought my review this week of Fast 9 was a bit critical, you'll find I wrote all those notes before a watch pitch meeting and he spotted exactly the same things as I did. I've started to realize that I am on his wavelength completely. It's so enjoyable. He's fun with the way he does it. He's, you know, when he points out little failings of plot and it'll be like the producer saying, but how does that happen? It's like, because the script says so. Okay, that'll make us money. And it's all about that. And he's got little buzzwords, you know, some like, how are they going to get out of that situation? Surely it's going to be difficult. No, super easy, barely an inconvenience that you just latch onto. They are a thrill to watch. There's over 100 episodes out there to delve through. Just do a search for Pitch Meeting and think of a franchise that you love, Pirates of the Caribbean, Alien, whatever, and you will find one to start you off with. And once you start on that hole, you will start digging down deeper and deeper through all of the episodes. Pitch Meeting on YouTube are a little five to ten minutes joy every Sunday. And talking of joy, uh, it was announced this week with by dropping the new uh, season trailer, and that is season two of Ted Lasso. Now, I have you to thank for Ted Lasso. Uh, I just thought it was just an absolute delight, and I can't wait. So I, I'll be talking about this series when, when it uh, finally appears, and it does finally appears on Apple on July 23rd, and I just can't wait. I've just missed Ted Lasso out of my life, and just seeing him in that trailer uh, and seeing those characters again made me warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and that's it for this week. We'll be back with another film file next week, God willing. But in the meantime, I've been Lee Ford. I've been Andy Meekin. A pleasure as always. And you're Andy. Yes. You'll be getting like them bloody beatniks before you know it. <laughs>